0: And then again, good morning. Uh, Pastor Lloyd is... uh taking the day and he and his family went down to the Twin Cities for the uh, free Lutheran Bible College Christmas concerts so he is down there uh, this weekend and this isn't him getting me back for uh, skipping out a couple of Sundays ago I'm uh, waiting for that uh, day to come yet <laughs> but uh, again good morning blessed advent to each and every one of you and um, happy New Year as well <laughs> and no I'm not going crazy or getting too far ahead of myself uh, and the church calendar the, the first Sunday of Advent is the first Sunday in the new church year we kick off with this celebration of Advent as waiting this anticipating the Messiah to come and again Advent is that season of waiting of anticipation and how many of you enjoy show me your hands how many of you enjoy really enjoy waiting for something <laughs> really enjoy that, right? I didn't think so. No, ex- nobody looks forward to waiting. Nobody gets excited by waiting. If it were up to us, we would never have to wait for anything ever, right? We don't want to wait for the train to go by. We don't want to wait for the next weekend to come. We don't want to wait for summer to come. We want those things, and we want them yesterday. <laughs> we do not like waiting, But the season of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, helps us to prepare for the coming or to the the Advent of the Christ child at Christmas. The word Advent actually comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And Scripture actually talks about two advents of Jesus. One has already happened, that's the, the Christmas celebration. But the second advent, the second coming, is yet to come. And this is when Jesus comes back, ushers us into eternity, sets up his eternal kingdom. It's been called traditionally the second coming, but I like the phrase the second advent as it ties the two together. And right now here in 2023, we are between the two advents. In our sermon text for this morning, the first Sunday in Advent, we're going to study the second advent of Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn uh, to Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. Would you rise as you are able for the word of the Lord? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Reading in Jesus' name, Peter writes... For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. (laughs) But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, again, these are your words. Your word is truth. Continue to sanctify us this morning in your truth. And as we await your second advent, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us patience. We thank you for your patience and that uh, your patience calls us to you and calls us to repentance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In this text, there are uh, two things, two very important truths that Peter wants us to remember and to keep at the, at the forefront of our minds. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, he tells us to remember these things. Remember these things. First, he, he tells us to remember the prediction of the prophets. And then second, he tells us to remember the commands of Jesus. So first, let's look at the predictions of the prophets. What are the predictions of the prophets? Again, I think Peter had in mind the Old Testament prophets, guys like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and the rest of them, whom the Lord gave visions to or glimpses of what lay ahead. Peter would have us remember what they said. And when we begin to think of the Old Testament and the flow of the narrative and of history and the role of the prophets it's important to keep in mind, uh, and I'm going to say this and then we're going to talk about it here. It's important to keep in mind that Jesus was not God's backup plan. What do I mean by that? When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it did not throw the Lord God for a loop. He wasn't surprised by their actions. He wasn't surprised by their rebellion. He didn't need to come up quickly with this plan to remove sin. And it's not as if God tried a bunch of different things that failed one after another. Adam and Eve in the garden, living with him in perfection, all that failed. So let's try this covenant with Noah, well, all that failed. Let's try these sacrifices and systems with the Old Testament uh, law and the Levites and, and all of those things. And, and then they failed, and so, well, let's try this Jesus plan. No, Jesus And the cross was the plan of the Lord from the beginning. And the whole of the Old Testament is moving forward towards his arrival, pointing forward towards him. And there's a really interesting concept of of this being, uh, Jesus being the plan of God long before creation began. And in Revelation 13, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Far from being plan B or C or D, Jesus slain from the foundation of the world was God's plan. Jesus' death and resurrection for a fallen sinful humanity was a triune God's thought and plan from before he spoke creation into existence, before sin came along. And I mention that because all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is giving his people, his prophets, glimpses of what that would look like like one of the first examples is found in Genesis chapter 3 right after Adam and Eve fell into sin the Lord speaking to the devil the Lord said this he said I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman between her your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel and ever since that day, God's people have been waiting for a Redeemer, one who would crush the, the head of the serpent, crush Satan. And this prophecy, of course, was fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. There, as he suffered and bled and died, the enemy was able to bruise his heel. Although it resulted in Jesus' death, it was only a bruise for Jesus because, of course... Death wasn't the end. He rose from the grave victorious on the third day, having paid for our sins. And there are hundreds of other prophecies that we could look at that the Lord made regarding his son. And as the prophets saw these things, they they couldn't necessarily see the distance between the events, uh, whether they would occur simultaneously or hundreds or thousands of years apart. Someone has likened biblical prophecy to mountain ranges. And I think that analogy is very helpful. Uh, last summer, there were a bunch of us who had the opportunity to go backpacking in Jasper National Park uh, in Canada. And the trip will most likely be remembered because of the free helicopter ride we got across in the Raging River. And you guys have heard that story. But aside from that, we had uh, wonderful, glorious views on that trip, they were second to none. Um, some of the most grand and majestic mountain ranges uh, that I have ever seen And as you stared at them, you realized that they just kept going on and on and on and on, range after range, peak after peak. It became hard to tell when one mountain range began, when the next one ended. And here's a picture of us up in Glacier Pass. Uh, There's a lake down there between Todd and Luke's heads. It's way down there that we had yet like three miles to go. Uh, But you see those mountain ranges off in the back. They just keep going and going and going and going and going. And it's hard to tell whether, again, that particular mountain peak belongs to one range or the next or things of that nature. When the Old Testament prophets were given glimpses of the Messiah, oftentimes they glanced a big picture kind of all at once. And they would see both the Messiah's first advent, his first coming, and his second advent, his second coming, all at once. And um, so sometimes they they, they get those things confused and it's it's easy for us now between the advents but for them they would see them both together Uh, one example is this Um, in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9 uh, this is a verse again that's commonly put on Christmas cards for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In these verses, we we very clearly see both Jesus' first advent and his second advent, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those words very clearly refer to Jesus' first coming, his first advent, at time, and the language of the government being upon his shoulders, the establishment of his kingdom, and so forth, you can take that one of two ways. You can see that as being fulfilled in his first advent as he is ruling and reigning through the gospel, or you can see that as a second advent fulfillment when the heavens and earth are recreated, when the dwelling place of God is with man. You can see him as a combination of both as well. And Isaiah saw these things, and as he saw them, he wasn't necessarily seeing the time or the distance between them. It's only in hindsight that we can really begin to see the pr- pr- prophetic perspective a little more clearly and uh, what was applied to which advent. Uh, we could go on with, with other examples, but, uh, but we'll move on there. We're told to remember the, the predictions of the prophets. We're also told by Peter in chapter 3 to remember the commands of Jesus. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our, the Lord and Savior through your apostles, and I think these commandments of the Lord that Peter had in mind could be summarized in the words of Jesus' first recorded preaching in Mark chapter one. He says, Jesus um, says this. He says, "The time is fulfilled. Repent." And the, I'm sorry, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel the commands of Jesus that we are to remember could be summarized repent and believe to repent is to acknowledge your sin before the Lord and to turn away from it it's a returning towards God repentance involves a wholesale course correction for your life Repentance means you evaluate your life according to God's word, and where God's word shows you where you sin and fall short and are wrong, you correct your trajectory according to it. You're also invited to believe the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the good news. The good news that the Messiah, the Savior, has arrived and has become the sacrifice and the substitute for your sins. Jesus died on the cross in your place and on your behalf. And when we believe that glorious truth, we have life in his name. We are born again. We become children of God. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And this process of of repentance and belief in Jesus isn't just a one-and-done task on your to-do list. Repentance and belief is a daily, hourly, even moment-by-moment lifestyle Living life in daily repentance and belief in the gospel is something that we do each and every single day as the Lord works on us through his word. There are a couple of other things that Peter wants us to keep in the forefront of our minds and uh, some important elements that he wants us to understand, to know completely. In verse 3, he says this. He says that scoffers will come. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Peter writes this. He says, Knowing f- this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffering, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers will come in the last days. In the New Testament, the the apostles describe the last days not as just some far-off, future, distant thing, but the last days were the here and the now. The last days began with Christ's first advent and will culminate in his second advent. For example, in his Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, and he says, "...in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh." And Peter saw the events at Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit to dwell within individual believers as the, as the kickoff of the last days. And ever since then, Christians, we have been living in the last days. And so there are scoffers, not just in the future, but scoffers in the here and now. So what do they scoff at? What do they doubt? What do they mock and disbelieve? They, believe, they disbelieve Jesus' second advent they say where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation where is his second coming Ever since the uh, the first advent of Jesus, uh, he, he promised that he would return. He would usher his kingdom in, right? Uh, verses that we're familiar with from John chapter 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And ever since then, believers, we have been looking forward to longing for Christ's return. But yet scoffers have begun to doubt Jesus' words and his return. Where is the promise of his coming, they say. They reason, well, he hasn't come back yet. He might not ever. And what this scoffing really amounts to is a doubting of God's word. Jesus had promised to return, but scoffers doubt, and they throw shade on Jesus' promise. And this scoffing at God's word is really a rehearsing or rehashing of Satan's first lie to Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, the first trick that Satan tried to play on Eve and was really successful with was to get her to doubt God's word. Did God really say? It was his first and his only question. And all throughout Scripture, it seems like he's got that same trick up his sleeve. Did God really say? Uh, For example, at Jesus' baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and then there's a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father Almighty, that says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and nights, and he's tempted by Satan. And what does Satan say? The first temptation begins this way. He said, if you are the Son of God command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, right after the father confirmed to his son, this is my beloved son, Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt God's word. If you really are God's son. And it's the same trick the deceiver uses today. Did God really say, and then follow it up with the the current cultural trends, did God really say that marriage is to be preserved between one man and one woman Did God really say that life begins in the womb? Did God really say that there are only two genders? Did God really say? Scoffing at Christ's return is a denial of the word of God, a denial of the power of God's word. Uh, there's, uh, this is something that Peter, as he says in verse 5, these scoffers deliberately overlook, even though the evidence is right in front of them. They fail, to see, uh, they fail to see the power of God's word in creation. Verse 5 says this, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And the phrase out of water and, and through water uh, refers to God's creative, powerful act in, in, in creation as he separated the waters from the waters on the second day of creation. Uh, Genesis 1-6 talks about that. And as you read through the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, you, you quickly notice a handful of things. Uh, one of them is how God is doing all of these creative acts. He is doing it with his word. And God said, let there be, and it was so. God's word is powerful. He spoke and creation sprung into existence. He spoke and light was. He spoke and the earth was formed. He spoke and creatures of all kinds happened. He spoke. God's word, as we learn, is powerful and efficacious. To be efficacious means that God's word does stuff. But yet Peter says the scoffers doubt God's powerful word in creation. And these scoffers also doubt God's word in past judgment. Verse 6 calls to mind the flood. By means of these, that is the water and the word, by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. The flood recorded in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is not just a little localized flood. If it was, he would have just told Noah and his family to move. But the flood was a worldwide event with catastrophic um, Destruction. It was brought on by the sinfulness of man in Noah's day, and it was a a destruction, a decreation, if you will, uh, that completely changed the earth. And this past judgment on sin of the world was by means of God, by, by means of water and God's word. God's word was powerful in past judgment. And God's word will be powerful in future judgment. Verse 7 says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. By the same word the same creative word of God that spoke creation into existence, This is the same powerful word of God's judgment in the flood, by that same word, future judgment is coming for the ungodly. There will be a day, there will be a day where you will stand before the throne of Almighty God and give an account for your life. Every evil thought, every wicked deed, every word spoken in anger and hatred, every envy, every covetousness that you have ever had will be, given to call, or will be given an account of. You'll be found guilty, of course, guilty of sinning before a holy God. And your condemnation, your sentence, it'll be severe, an eternity in hell. Yet for those of you who have repented and believed the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his blood, it covers you. His blood cleanses you from all of your sin. His blood is the payment for you in full for your sins. Jesus died on the cross in your place and on your behalf to bring you to God. For those of you who believe this glorious truth, the truth of the gospel, the future judgment has no sway, no power over you. Your life has been hidden in God with Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. You are perfect. You are a child of the king. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Peter says that along with the judgment that's going to be on individuals, he says that the heavens and earth are being stored up for fire. The heavens and the earth, too, will be destroyed. And I'm not going to talk a lot about this topic because if you look ahead into the next handful of verses, uh, Peter continues to go on with that topic, and I'll leave that for Pastor Lloyd to cover in the next section. So any questions you have on that, you can hold for him. But in response, in response to the scoffers who deny the power of God and the promise of Christ's return, Peter reminds us of a, of a second important truth that we are to know, The Lord is patient. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." in connection with the lord's patience uh, peter touches on an important concept in verse eight and one that can kind of be mind-boggling to think about for us as christians the lord is beyond time think about this what was god doing before genesis 1 1. what was he doing in eternity past was he sitting there twiddling his thumbs just waiting for the right time (laughs) The question is a good question, but it is really based on uh, faulty premises. You see, before Genesis 1-1, before the creation of the cosmos, before the beginning began, there was no time. Time hadn't yet begun to tick. (laughs) When God first spoke his creative word and began forming the cosmos, only then did time begin. Before that, there was no such thing, no dimension as time. (laughs) Time. You and I are on this static timeline, right? We go forward in time from one moment to the next, always at the same rate, never speeding up, never slowing down, A to B to C to D. And we can't skip over E, F, and G just to get to H no matter how much we try and, and no matter how much we'd like to. We can't go back to B to relive B except in our memory, right? The Lord God, however, is not stuck on this same timeline like we are. He is outside of time, and he transcends it. If you will, he is the the paper on which our timeline has been written. He sees all. He is over all. He knows all. He's also the author and the creator of that timeline and knows each and every single point of each and every single individual and every single creature everywhere. For God, every moment is the present for him right now and if i can even begin to classify right now as something for god uh... right now for the lord god every moment is the present the lord god right for the lord god right now the israelites are just crossing the red sea <laughs> right now jesus is being crucified right now martin luther is nailing his ninety-five theses to the door right now uh, neil armstrong is stepping out onto the moon right now the vikings are hoisting up the super bowl trophy even future events (laughs) are right now for the Lord every moment is present for the Lord God because he is outside of time he is not constrained by its bounds and that's why Peter says the Lord can seem slow in coming we're going through life moment by moment slogging through the L, M, N, O, P's of life waiting for him to return where is he? where is his coming? but he is right on time His time. For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And that's why Peter reminds us that the Lord is patient with us. And the Lord's patience with us is evidence of his mercy. And that's the emphasis in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. No, the Lord has not yet returned. But that does not mean that his promises, that his word is in vain. The Lord is patient. He's got a long fuse. (laughs) He's slow to get angry. Patience is part of his character, his nature, his essence. It is who he is. And Peter put it, the Lord's patience is evidence of his desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of him. There isn't a person who's ever lived that the Lord hasn't wanted for his own. Yet he knows that some will sadly reject this invitation of grace and mercy and forgiveness and walk away from it. He did not create us as robots. He gave us a free will. But his wish is that all should come and receive mercy and grace, his forgiveness and love. And so this morning, receive his mercy and his grace. If you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let that, let that be The first thing you do today. He is patient. He is long-suffering with you. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We do not know when we'll face the end of our own timeline and we'll have to face judgment. Yes, the Lord is patient, but there will come a moment when it'll be too late and you'll run out of second chances. Come today and receive his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. And for those of you who are believers in Jesus, who are a part of God's family, who are covered by the blood of Jesus, we have the honor this morning of of receiving Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, where we again receive his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace in in a visible, tangible way together as we celebrate at the altar. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we would be consumed if you were not patient. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness in Jesus. And I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know that mercy and grace and forgiveness, that today would be the day of salvation. It is in your Son's name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.